Hey, good morning. I hope you're having a good weekend. It's good to see you. Um, we've been singing a lot this morning about one specific kind of a theme. There's been sort of a thread that's going through that, and that is the fact that God has saved us from so much. And I think we're used to that kind of language, but He saved us from sin. That is the, that is the big thing, and the guilt and everything, all the consequences, the damage and destruction that goes along with that. But you know what? On the other side of that, He's also saved us from all the religion that we would create all the methods, all the systems, everything we would come up with, trying our best to know God, to know more about Him, to know who He is. And it was tedious, and it was burdensome, and it just seemed to go on and on. And our best creativity, our best moments, our most devotional thoughts could never come up with a satisfactory way to bring us in a close and deep relationship with God, to set us free from sin, absolutely yes, but to set us free from all of that that we tried that didn't work. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today because Jesus has done that in such a beautiful and such a powerful way. So here's the big idea for today's message. Jesus calls us to not trust anymore in all our own you know, external righteousness. And what that is, is legalism. Okay? That's when you do all the do's and the don'ts, and you try to get it right, and you've got all these rules, and uh, all of this that you're trying to do, and you know, it's just, it just it's hard, hard, hard to, to do, and we never get there. And he says, you know what? You can finally, you can let go of that. We're not going to do that. Our own external righteousness, which was never enough. But we can trust in His perfect work. What Jesus did on the cross, we can trust in that now. What He did on our behalf. So here's how we're going to pull that into our week this week, beginning today. We're going to try to live that out. Uh, whenever I listen or whenever I read something, whenever I watch something, I think, okay, what's that for me? Is it just more information that I'm going to put in my head? Because that's just going to turn into pride. That's going to turn into more self-righteousness. It's going to turn into more legalism. And that would be ironic. That would just be the worst thing. Uh, if all we did on Sunday mornings was just kind of add to our repertoire of information, you know, and we just know more than we did last week, or we know more uh, than, the, than the other person. So what I want to do is not just give you a big idea, but say, hey, here's how we're going we're gonna to apply this uh, to our lives. So here's the application point. It was actually for freedom that God set us free in Christ. And that's straight out of Galatians. I'm not making that up. And I know that if you were to give that a little more thought, you'd think, no, I think it's for this that God saved us, so that I could be a better person, or so God saved me so that I could do even greater great works, and, and I, I kind of lean into that too. I go, God, what's your purpose? And he goes, I, I set you free to set you free. It's for freedom's sake. And I chose just one verse, but you can check this out. You can cross-reference it for yourself. It, it's just all through the New Testament. It was for freedom. Your freedom that Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1. And so what we're going to do is that we're going to strive. 
we're going to move forward with as much momentum as we have to live in that rest that Jesus has provided, that he has secured for us. That's right out of Hebrews 4.11. He said, I pray that out of everything you do, all the good stuff that's going on, everything, all the benefits and this new freedom, this new identity that you have in Christ, that you would learn how to rest in that. Folks, it is such a difference. And I know some of you, <laughs> you've worked so hard at knowing God. You've worked so hard at being a good Christian. You know, and I think we've, we've kind of gotten something wrong there. That was never his intent for you to be so worn out and to be so tired and to get so burned out. And just at this place of weariness, like, wow, being a Christian is really, really hard and it just takes a lot of work. And the Holy Spirit would say to you today, he'd say to me today, hey, that's not what I had in mind. That's not the design. That's not at all what this is about in the relationship and the life that we have in Jesus. Now, to illustrate that, I'm going to choose this passage that fits into our Mark series uh, where Jesus came uh, face to face. I mean, he just confronted uh, legalism head on. Now, he was always involved in all these these amazing situations. You know, he demon possession and just sinfulness and uh, just uh, all this corruption and all these different things. But Jesus actually confronted legalism and some of the biggest you know opposition that he ever faced in his life and his ministry came from the most religious people in the world isn't that kind of crazy that it would be religious people who'd come up against Jesus that's the way it works because God doesn't want to have anything to do with that he's got something brand new and something different Here's what I mean. Look at uh, Matthew, uh, excuse me, not Matthew, Mark chapter 7. And I'm just going to read. I think I gave you guys a lot of verses in the tech booth, but we're just going to stop at verse 20 today. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. That was their agenda. That's, you know, that's what's fueling this whole thing. They noticed, because they're looking for it, that some of Jesus' disciples failed to follow the usual Jewish ritual of (gasps) hand-washing. I've committed a lot of sins in my life, and I wish that this was what somebody could bust me on. You know, that this was like, if you're going to nail me, it's like, yeah, we noticed you didn't wash your hands. Oh, you got me. Yeah, that's, okay. The worst they could come up with was they didn't wash their hands before eating. The Jews especially the Pharisees, did not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands. Isn't that just beautiful? Um, As required by their ancient traditions. (sighs) Give me a break. Okay. Similarly, they eat nothing bought from the market unless they have immersed their hands in water. Everything. It's just so la-di-da. Okay, this is but one of many traditions they have clung to. They just grab them and hold on to them. Such as their ceremony. They're all about washing. Okay, (laughs) they are so into keeping everything clean. Washing cups. 
pitchers, kettles, etc., etc., etc. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, who thought those things were really important, ask him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old customs? For they, gasp, eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, this is so Jesus. And this is why, you know, and God bless you if you've got on a WWJD bracelet. This is why I don't wear one. Because I never knew what Jesus was going to say or do next. If I were predicting it, Jesus would have said, well, bless you. Thank you for asking the question. Let me give you an explanation of why we skipped the hand washing ceremony. Not Jesus. Jesus replied... You hypocrites! I wouldn't have gone there. <laughs> you hypocrites. Isaiah was prophesying about you. Jesus, could you dial it back a little bit? You know, could you tone that? He says, you're talking about you. Actually, you know when Isaiah said that, and I know you've memorized this, you're who he had in mind. He said this, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts far away. Their worship is a farce, for they replace God's commands with their own man-made teachings. And you ignore God's specific laws and substitute your own traditions. And then he said, you reject God's laws in order to hold on to your own traditions. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. Yikes. I would have been dead by age three or four. I think. Uh, but you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry. I can't help you, Mom and Dad, for I have vowed to God what I have could have given to you. Sorry, I did a bigger, better thing. Good luck. You let them disregard their needy parents. As such, you break the law of God in order to protect your own tradition. And this is only one example. There are many, many others. Can you believe Jesus is saying this? Then Jesus called to the crowd. And these guys are still standing right there. And he said, come in here. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. You are not defiled by what you eat. You're defiled by what you say and do. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowds. And his disciples asked him, they, well, they get in the house, and they go, hey, Jesus, Hey, what did you mean by that that you said out there? They're really mad. What's this statement you made? Don't you understand either? He asked. Can't you see that what you eat, what, what goes in, it's not going to defile you? Food doesn't come in contact with your heart. 
but only passes through the stomach and then out again. By saying this, he showed that every kind of food is acceptable. And they're all thinking, let's go to Buddy's for lunch right after church. It's okay. And then he added, it is the thought life that defiles you. You see, it starts inside and works its way out, not the other way around. So as we dig into this reading today, we're going to see that the scribes and the Pharisees, and I know they're like always the bad guys in these stories, and there are some of these people in this century, they were really trying to get it right. They were trying to do the right thing. It's not like, and I know in every movie portrayal of them, you know, they're, they're like really wicked guys, they're scheming, and, and they had become a lot like that. It had become a lot about themselves and the whole system and the way it was built. But some of these people were just really trying to, to do the right thing. They felt called to this, but they were so wrong. And we're going to see that, you know, what they would do, this particular group is just following Jesus around, looking for any means that they can find to criticize him, to condemn him, especially uh, regarding any violation that he would have about the Jewish laws. Now, there are hundreds of these laws, and they were the guys who had studied it like crazy ever since they was babies. You know, I mean, they just, they knew this backward and forward. Just like some of you, you know baseball stats or football or bat. You can just, you can name players. You can, you know who to put on your fantasy team. I mean, they knew, they knew this stuff. They knew it backward and forward. And they knew that not everybody else did know it. So they had this big advantage of going actually you know that guy at the party you know that guy in your class who raises his hand and says actually it was you know and, and they know it's like the guy on jeopardy right now you know i mean he just hits the button and he answers and he's making like a bazillion dollars i'm like yeah i would have thought of that in a minute or two or not at all yeah they, they were this guy they were like that so they're following you, and remember, Jesus is himself a Jew. So he's right in their bullseye. And here, Jesus and his disciples are accused of, and, I, and like I said a moment ago, this is, all, this is the best you got? This is, this is what you come up with? Uh, eating with defiled hands. And I hear my mother's voice ringing in my ear coming in from play. Did you wash your hands? Go wash your hands. And, you know, you remember how you'd run them underwater and do the time, and then, you, you know, you're in there, and uh, we wouldn't have fit this at all. What happened is they didn't ceremonially wash their hands before coming to the table. And this wasn't about hygiene. This was this thing they would do, and it was just, you know, it didn't really mean anything anymore. It had just evolved over time. You know, we just lost uh, one of our heroes in the Christian world, especially uh, in, in literature, one of the best-known authors of the 20th and 21st century, um, Warren Wiersbe, uh, passed away recently. And I love what he had to say about this. It was not the law that protected the tradition, but the tradition that protected the law. You know, even today, right? And maybe this kept some of you from Jesus because you're having to jump over so many other hurdles and through so many hoops and 
there's just layers of everything between you and Jesus. And you just thought, wow, that's intimidating. There's just a really, there's a lot of traditions out there. And they're in various denominations. They're in churches uh, everywhere that are practiced and protected. Some of you, if we were to take turns talking or have a conversation over coffee, you could say, oh, my goodness, in the church where I grew up, here's what we had to do. Or in my home, my mama would always make it. You know, there's just all these traditions that become really, really important. And so we practice them and then we protect them. We, we guard those as strongly as if they were biblical doctrine. You know, we, and we get pretty emotional about some of those things. Jesus turned the Jews' criticism into an opportunity to warn them that they had elevated these traditions of men above the Word of God. He pointed out a religious and a legal loophole that this Jewish mafia had created. It's something, and this is the only place in Scripture that it's named, that it that it that it's, it's, it's mentioned. Uh, but it was a common practice called Corbin. And what you could do, you know, you, you're, you're out of school, you're starting to get your career going, you're making some money, and you want to buy a new chariot, and you want to start wearing nicer robes than you used to wear, and you want to move to the east side of Jerusalem, and, you know, your life is pretty good, but your parents are getting older, and so you're having to take care of them and everything. So here's this practice. The commandment said, you got to honor your father and mother. However, what you could do, a Jewish man could say, I am devoting all of my assets to the temple. The temple was a really, really big deal. Now, we are the temple of God, okay? It's not this room. It's not anything about 3200 Kingston Pike. You are this portable temple of the Holy Spirit. But in that day, they saw the temple as the big deal. That was everything, and everything was the, you know, the buzz. The, everything hovered around that. So this guy would say, I dedicate everything I have to the temple. And the priest would come back and say, okay, um, then when you die, we'll, we'll receive all that. Right now, you just keep everything. Go ahead and make a down payment. So you would make this payment... And then everything you have is sort of yours, but it also sort of belongs to the temple. So now mom and dad come along and they go, hey, we're really having a hard time. We're poor. There's no social security. There's no retirement. We don't have a 401k. We're, you know, we're starving to death. And you as a child were perfectly well within your rights. In fact, it was considered to be this you know, spiritual, religious, beautiful thing to say, oh, so sorry, mom and dad. I'm so sorry. I've given everything to God, and it's not mine anymore. I don't have anything to give you. I'm so sorry. And you go on and live however you want. Doesn't that sound hideous? I mean, isn't that just like you think, ah, that is, that is so immoral. But they had turned things so upside down, they would be very pious about it and go on and keep living their life. That's what they would do. And Jesus said, Hey, I'm just going to mention one, this, this tradition, for instance, just makes a mockery out of God's word. What are you thinking? What, what are you doing? Uh, he, he said this in, in Mark 7, 13. He said, thus you nullify the word of God 
by your tradition that you've handed down. It's, it's this, he said, and, and you do a lot of things like that. He said, you have created so much that benefits you uh, and made it so that it's spiritual. You know, you have weaponized the scripture and the law. Now, Jews had a lot of these tedious laws. Uh, there's one, I was reading about these, I just went down this rabbit hole, and this one was one that I just thought, okay, this is, this is just nutsy enough that I'm going to mention. If a Jewish man's carrying a pot, okay, he's, you know, he's kind of like making his way through, and it's crowd, and a Gentile comes up and touches his pot, the vessel kind, you know, that you hold stuff in. Uh, and so he's carrying, and, and a Gentile accidentally touches his pot. He goes, oh, you know what he's got to do now? He's got to break the pot, and the pieces have to be broken into, so that the fragments are smaller than your big toe. I see why God would be so pleased and love that, you know. But can you imagine, and you just see that in your imagination, a Pharisee, he's busting this, you know, he's breaking this pot, and he's putting his big toe, but saying, yeah, there's still got a piece here that's a little bigger than my toe. We want God to be happy. And God is like, what? I don't get why. I actually want, Gen- and I'm just going to break it open and let Gentiles in, actually. I love them as much as I love you. I mean, they, you see what they had done. How in the world would that ever be pleasing to God? That's just one. There are so many of those. Now, the Jews aren't the only ones who are really good at replacing God's word with traditions. Christians have been doing it for a long, long time. In fact, for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, it didn't take long. After Paul and after the New Testament, the ink was just getting dry on some of the letters. We began to take it off track. We began to build in all these rules and systems and all these different things and traditions uh, as well. And over time, there became, you know, there were thousands of these regulations that began to be developed in the early Roman Catholic Church and then later in the Eastern Orthodox Church. A big doctrine that came, that was developed during this time of the Catholic Church was called papal um, infallibility. Now, this taught, you're not going to find this in your Bible if you start flipping going, where is that? It's not in there. But what that taught is that the Pope could speak ex cathedra. He, what he could do is speak from the chair, and his authority trumped that of Scripture. That he was, he was just as authoritative as the Bible. You think, whoa, that's, but that's, you know, uh, so that's the way that, that began to work. There's all other kind of ideas. And some of you may have grown up in that kind of a tradition. But then, in the 1500s, a group of Christians um, were really bold, and they came out and they protested the authority of the Pope, along with a lot of other things. They were called Protestants. Protest, Protestant, you get? And their defining doctrine was sola scriptura, scripture alone, salvation by faith, and nothing else. Grace and grace alone. This was a huge departure and brought about a movement that is just world-changing called the Reformation. 
But even these Protestants began to develop their own traditions. You can see it's all people. It's all people. I was reading through some of those, and you know they were especially fond, as are we oftentimes, of mixing Old Testament laws, you know, taking these old, worn-out laws that said, okay, that was for a different, you know, and mixing those with New Testament principles and teachings from Jesus and Paul. And kind of, and we've been living so mixed up ever since, going, well, I think I'm supposed to, no, actually, that's for me. You know, and we, we, we kind of mix and match and try to make all that work. Um, and then we just create our own. We just make up our own stuff. Um, some of the policies, for instance, uh, John Calvin, who was the founder of the Presbyterian Church, uh, which is also known as the Church of Scotland, kind of like uh, the Anglican Church is known as the Church of England, you know, in America. I don't think we get really a church named after us. But John Calvin always wore a hat to church. It's a little cap, a little hat, and he would only take it off to pray. And then he would put his, put his hat back on. So what do the other guys do? Well, he's the rock star, right? So everybody starts acting like and dressing like John Calvin. So every, all the men are showing up to church, and they're putting these little hats on. And they only take them off to pray. Now, later, biographers figured out and found out that the reason that John Calvin wore a hat was because his church was open and it was very cold and drafty. And because it was open, pigeons would come inside the church. They would fly in the doors and the windows and they would roost above. And John Calvin didn't want to be cold and he also didn't want the pigeons bombing him. So he would only risk taking his hat off when he prayed and hope there's no pigeons, you know, that they're being reverent during the prayer. And everybody wore hats. And that became the tradition for several hundred years in the Presbyterian church because of pigeons. Now you think, wow, you're picking on Catholics, you're picking on Presbyterians. Um... My favorites are Baptists, so, you know, we have, we have just as many unbiblical traditions as anybody else. Um, and I, I grew up not in church, but I was connected to it. My, my family, uh, my grandparents were Methodist and then became Baptist. And my grandfather would always tell me this story. He had a porch swing in West Tennessee, and he said, I was sitting on that porch swing one day, and I was reading my Bible, and he said, and I realized the Baptists are right. And he, so I walked down to the Baptist church, and I joined it, and I've been there ever since. It never occurred to me to ask, what were they right about? You know, what, what was it? And I kind of wished, because I think, well, they look kind of similar to me, but, you know, he said, they were right. So Baptist, you know, in that home, when I would go to visit them, there were rules. Uh, for instance, have you ever heard that it's a sin for a Baptist to dance? I have seen some Baptists dance, and it is a sin. <laughs> you ever go to a wedding, and at the reception, maybe there's a little too much partying, and, pe and people... And, and, and your Aunt Wanda, who, who you've known your whole life, suddenly decides, I'm pretty good, you know, and she gets up and you're going, oh, Aunt Wanda, that's a sin. 
playing cards. I mean, there are just all kinds of things. And some of you grew up, and you're still nervous about going to movies. <laughs> because we have these things that were built in. Now, Tom Rainer is a guy, I've only met him once, but I respect him a lot. He taught for years and years at Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. He was president of Lifeway uh, for a long time. Uh, and kind of one of those strong voices of SBC churches. And he, he, t- he took a survey uh, among several hundred churches and said, what are your most highly guarded and argued over Baptist traditions in your church? I just thought you might want to know top answers here. And uh, you know, here, here, they, here they are. One, number one, worship and music style. And uh, we fought the worship wars maybe back in the night, whatever, but that's the number one uh, thing still out there. Order of worship service. Uh, okay. Uh, and by the way, the worship service that we use today was invented by Martin Luther during the Reformation. Seminary, they used to meet like early in the morning, like at 8 o'clock in the morning, but on Saturday nights, these theological students were staying up and they're talking about doctrine, the Bible, and theology, you know, all night. And so they would sleep in late. So Martin Luther had the idea, let's bump the worship service back to 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Now, we're a little non-traditional, edgy, progressive church. We meet at 1045. <laughs> in all these years, we've changed it 15 minutes. But the order of worship, Martin Luther said, we need to standardize this and kind of do it the same way so people know what to expect and how they can print this in their bulletins, <laughs> you know. So he came up with an order of worship service that is almost exactly the order of worship that we have followed today and have ever since I've been going to church. That's what I'm talking about, tradition. So um, order of worship, committees, there are a lot about committees, and I just... So I just put it in that because we love committees. Um, specific ministries and programs, how they should run, who should, you know, then that, and it changes and all of this. Use of certain rooms was high on the list. You can't do that in this room. You can, you, you can only do that in this room and this room. And, and the people have argued churches have split over how to use different rooms and buildings. And then I'm just going to add the next one, and there, there are several more business meetings. You ever been to a good Baptist business meeting? Oh, my goodness, I've, I've seen those. And so, you know, there's all these. So we've got it too, okay? In this text, Jesus immediately rebuked the Pharisees, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. There's this powerful voice. Uh, and he was referencing Isaiah 29, Verse 13, he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, I've done that. I have been the biggest hypocrite in this room. So I'm not pointing my fingers at you or back at these Pharisees. I'm letting the Holy Spirit speak to my heart. There have been times when I have honored him with my lips because I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm a Christian, you know. My heart was way off somewhere else. The Pharisees are using their own personal interpretation of law and traditions as what they feel is an expression of obedience to God. But they just kept piling on, they kept making it harder and more complicated. 
and longer and more intricate. And then nobody could keep up with it anymore. And one of those had to do with cleanliness. This was deeply rooted in history in, in old Jewish law and traditions. So what we're reading in this text is how the Pharisees had taken this simple ceremonial tradition that was originally designed to remind people every time they would do that of how God has taken all of your filth and all of your sin and all of your and he's cleansed that. He's made you clean. Like David when he prayed in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart. So he said every time we just do that and that's just a little reminder how God has been so good. They took something that was kind of affectionate and sweet and turned it into a law. You know, turned it into something to fight about. Jesus takes it back. So that's what this is about. Man-made law. And, and I think they, they liked this element of control and power. And you can tell when somebody's left the spirit and gotten in their flesh or if a church is off track by how much power and control they will exercise. There's something about that that religious folks like. Most people just like that anyway, right? They just like being in charge. Jesus takes this opportunity and he clarifies how the laws and traditions had gotten so distorted to the point where he brings it up. He said, that's defilement. He said, you're defiling yourselves. Here's what he said in verse 14 and 15. He says, when he called the, all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me. It's kind of like blowing a whistle or clapping your hands or getting a megaphone saying, hey, I need everybody to come in. I need you to pay attention. Everybody stop talking just for a minute. Hear me, everyone, and understand. I want you to really get this. There is nothing, you can circle the word nothing, that enters a man from outside that can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile him. You see, we, work, we just got that so backwards. We don't work on our thought life and our heart and our motivations and all of that. We work on trying to keep the rules about everything on the outside. Jesus is saying, it isn't what you swallow that's going to defile you. It's what our heart does with it. If our heart remains pure, and, and, and some of these, these false teachings, if you're le- and, and these improper motivations and these sinful desires, and it's your flesh, and that's, that's pushing you. Uh, to, to act on that, then yeah, you're defiled. You most definitely defile yourself, and you're going to hurt other people around you too. That's called sin. But Jesus just gave us really two commandments. I mean, there's like 600 of these commandments. And when they asked Jesus, what's the best one? And Jesus said, well, they're really just two. And they kind of go together. And the second one, nobody had ever thought about before. He said, you need to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Just be focused on God and love Him. And you need to love people around you. And nobody had really talked about loving people around them so much. It was just this vertical relationship with me and God. But he would go on and on, especially, you know, the disciple John would say, oh no, it's all about how you love others. That's what's going to prove you're a disciple. That's actually the litmus test. If you're really in, you're going to love people. That's going to be the characteristic about us. 
Now, this was mind-blowing. This was revolutionary because up until this time, everything about your religion and what defined you is what you believed, you know, what you taught, what you studied, what you... He says, yeah, it was all about that. Now it's what you do, and it's love. And he says, I can just wrap up all these laws in two things, because if you love people, you're not going to do this. If you love somebody, you will do that. And that's, that's what he made this about. So these two commandments. So here's a, it's a quick test. Sometimes when you're wondering, oh, is this okay, or is this bad? Or is this? Here's a question you can ask. What would love have me do? What would, what would love have me do? And before you step into that next action, that thought kind of carries you forward. You think, is this loving? Is this going to be a way I'm loving my mom? Is this going to be a way I'm loving my spouse? Is this going to be a way that I'm loving the people around me? Or am I just loving myself? Just a good question. It's a little bit like the what would Jesus do, isn't it? Now, you know, when I was thinking about this, the very first thing that came to my mind, what I think is the usual source that's always trying to lure us into sin, uh, that's pride. It's just, it's just pride. Pride is very often... I had in my original notes, it's always, and I backed off a little bit because I thought maybe there could be something else. But uh, if you follow that thread, pride is often the very first step to self-defilement. You've been proud. You've been independent from God. You've been self-reliant. You've got your own solutions, your own behaviors, your own actions. You know what to do best next and all of that. And it's just pride. So what are we going to take away from this message today? There's a couple of things I want you to remember. One, I think it's important to remember that the tradition is neither law nor doctrine. It's just a tradition. Traditions aren't necessarily bad. They're not necessarily sinful. We've got several beautiful traditions here at Calvary that I, that I love and will continue in. Nothing bad about that. But just remember, it's not a law. You know, it's not scripture. What we will not waver on is when it comes to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. The gospel. The teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. Everything else is negotiable. We're a New Testament church. Jesus has done something extraordinary for us and in us and through us. Last Monday night, I was uh, keeping my grandsons. Yeah, there it is, the grandson illustration. Okay, um, so I, I was keeping them, and their, their house, they have a, a nice big basement, and it was real rainy outside. So we're playing down the basement, and when we go over there, we play out there. We do Beyblades. If you don't know what that is, you're so old-timey. Um, so, so we're paying, playing with those. We're doing monster trucks. Um, they both have gravedigger trucks. Doesn't that sound so spiritual and godly? I'm such a, I'm a really good grandfather. Um, we're eating Sour Patch. We're eating whatever we want. You know, I mean, we're just having a dandy time. So um, we're down in the basement. We had played basketball. We just, it's just a boys' night in. You know, we're having a great time. Well, uh, my oldest grandson, who's five years old, Riley, 
uh, is, is a pretty good little ball player. He's actually the very best ball player in Knoxville, and he's, you know, number one on his team, and that's genetic. Uh, so we're, we're down there, and we're practicing. Now, he has, uh, some of you used to Little League, and you know what I'm talking about, and I say like a, a practice stick or a batting stick, just a little thin fiberglass pole, and it's got a ball on the end of it, and I hold that out, and, and then I just bring it toward him real slowly, uh, so that he can get used to that coming at him, and then he swings at it. And he was pretty good, you know, and I'd line him up and say, oh, you're staying, you know, and kind of work with him because I'm a really good coach. And um, so we're doing that, and uh, I noticed that he would kind of step back, and so I would step toward him. This is getting a little dangerous. So one time he swings, and he comes around, and there's a jar on a shelf behind him. And he hits that jar, which explodes into thousands of pieces. And we all freeze. You remember that feeling? You know, you did. No, you did. You know, and if we had been at the neighbor's house, we'd have been running. Come on, boys, you know. But um, he broke that jar. It went all over the basement. And Roddy, you got to know, you know, Graham, who's a three-year-old, he's like, yeah, whatever, we broke a jar. Are there any more of those Sour Patch, you know, candies? Uh, you know, he's just so laid back. Riley's not that way. Like, Riley's, he's kind of like me. He's, he's, he's our legalist. And he's looking at it, and he's like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. We broke the jar. All of a sudden, <laughs> we broke the jar, you know. So he's really nervous about that, and he's all upset, and um, he's such a good kid. He immediately says, we need to call mom and tell her. I go, no, we don't. <laughs> we don't need to call anybody, you know. We, we're going to just, we're going to sweep this up, and this never happened, you know. This, uh, and, but he's so anxious about it. He's so nervous. He says, I, I said, you know what? I can clean this up. I can clean this up. It's just a jar. It's just a jar. So I sweep it up, and the boys, they're scoping it out. They're going, you missed one. You missed a piece of glass. We're going to die. We're going to step on that, and who knows what, you know. And So I'm sweeping, getting it all up and everything, but he's still anxious. And every now and then, he's like, I think we ought to call mom. You see, what he wants to do is confess. <laughs> he wants to let her know. We did something. I did something, you know, and, and you need to know. And, and you know, he's, he's tapping into that part of his personality and his little heart. And I hate it for him, but I love that about him. You see, there is wired in you and there is wired in me a sense of justice. Nobody ever tells us, well, that's not fair. We just somehow know. And he knew. We can't just sweep up the pieces of glass and this be over. He knew that's not the solution. The only way I ever got him to stop worrying about it was this. I said, Riley, when your mom gets home, I'm going to tell her exactly what happened. And I'm going to tell her that it is my fault. I said, Riley, I'm going to take full responsibility for the jar, for everything that happened. I will accept the blame. I could almost visibly see him relax and begin to do what the writer of Hebrews said we're supposed to do 
to rest. Now, when his mom got home, and I'm ready to tell her, hey, we broke a jar downstairs. You know, I'm ready to tell her, oh, oh, no, 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 no. He had to get there first and go, hey, Danny's got something to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Something happened. And I told her in front of him, I said, a a jar got broken, and I, I take the blame for it. It was my responsibility, and I own that. You see, what happened in that moment is we didn't deny that the jar got broken. That was brought out into the open. We didn't say, you know, that Riley wasn't the one swinging the battle. No, it's like I took that on me. And so the incident was resolved. And that was that. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. I want you to get this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And many of you, your whole life, you stopped reading right there. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until, until it is accomplished. Now consider what Jesus did. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus' purpose was to establish the word, to embody it, to fully accomplish everything that was written in himself. Here's what Paul said in Romans 10, 4. He said, Christ is the conclusion. He is literally the termination of the law. And if you are still living under the law... You're not living New Testament gospel. The old laws are accomplished, finished. They're obsolete through Jesus. Your new law is to love God and to love others. Jesus would always take it to the next step. You know, they would always try to bring up these laws. And some of you think, wow, that's pretty good news. That's all I got to do. Yeah, but, you know... When they came to Jesus and said, oh, what about, what about this, is it, you know, this, this, this thing about adultery? And you know, what are you going to do about that? And says, we should stone that person to death. And Jesus said, when you look at somebody and you lust after them in your heart, that's not what love does. You've already committed adultery. And they're like, wait, we haven't done anything yet. Oh, yes, you have. Because you didn't do what love does. I mean, he went deeper every time, every time. He said, you're free from the law. Because they're obsolete. They're done. Because now you're in Christ. And you can rest. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. This is going to be a little different. A little non-traditional. Okay? I'm going to ask you to stand. And I just want to pray over you. And I'm going to say a prayer. And I'm going to just let you look up at the screens. I'm actually going to put the prayer on the screen as I pray it. And then after I pray, you can sit back down. But if this prayer captures you somehow, just affirm that in your heart. Just say, yes, Lord, that's me. 
Lord, I need this prayer. I need this answer in my heart, in my life. I don't want to be a legalist. I want to live in freedom. Because that's why God sent Jesus to die for me. To set me free from sin and from obsolete laws. Here's my prayer for you. And after I pray, please just be seated. We've got one more little thing we're going to do before we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for opening my eyes to who I am. Your child. This is my new identity as your child. You never pressure me to be myself. Instead, you encourage me, counsel me, love me, lift me up, guide me deeper into who I really am. Thank you for being such a good father. Right now, I lift up all who are listening to this prayer directly to you. For those who have been working so very hard for you, let them know they don't have to.